Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Uh, hello, everybody. It is June the 17th, 2022. It's a big anniversary. We'll get to that later, but as Regular viewers of the show know at the end of all my interviews, I always ask my guests for a suggestion of a, a further reading book. Uh, earlier this week, I had the young political scientist Nick Seabrook on the show. He has an interesting new book out, One Person, One Vote. And I asked Nick at the end of our conversation what we should read next. And this is what Nick said. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to your new history of gerrymandering? in uh, mid-June 2022. So if, like me, you are a politics junkie and you're looking for some uh, not exactly light reading, but something that is extremely interesting and which also delves into American political history, uh, I would highly recommend Garrett Graff's new book, uh, Watergate, A New History. Um, Uh, I didn't pay you to say it, Nick, but he's coming on the show on Friday. We get all the best people. Yeah, and this is an incredibly comprehensive look into a scandal that is now 50 years old in uh, in the United States, kind of the quintessential American political scandal. And it's, uh, it's a really, really interesting book. If you thought you knew everything about the Watergate scandal, uh, I think if you read this, you'll probably find that you, that you didn't. And the most interesting thing about this, I think, is that uh, if Watergate happened today and Richard Nixon was president in 2022, with the level of polarization we have, I think he would probably have survived Watergate. It was the fact that Republicans turned against him that ultimately led to him resigning and losing the presidency. Um, I think in today's political environment, Republicans would have stood by Nixon and he probably would have made it through the scandal. Um, perhaps less popular, but he would he would have remained in office. Well, there you have it. It's, uh, it's June 17th. 2022. And we've got the great Gareth M. Graff on the show, the author of Watergate, A New History, one of America's leading nonfiction writers. And of course, June 17th, 2022, Gareth, you don't need me to tell you this, is the 50th anniversary of the actual break-in at the Watergate building. um, uh, uh, According to Wikipedia, uh, of the Democratic National Committee Headquarters. I know you're talking to me from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where you are participating in a in a weekend uh, seminar on on Watergate. Uh, how should we be celebrating this 50th anniversary? Should we be going out and getting drunk, Garrett? Uh, well, I, I actually think um, you should celebrate it in the same way that the burglars celebrated their burglary that night by dining on lobster at the very fancy Watergate hotel before they went upstairs to burglarize the DNC offices. Um, you know, this this obviously is actually a very weird time and moment to be marking this anniversary because we find ourselves in the midst of the January 6th hearings uh, r- right now as we mark this 50th anniversary of the, um, the, the break-in itself, which is of course, uh, the beginning of the unraveling of Donald, 
of Richard Nixon. Oh, that was I was going to get you that one on that one, Garrett. You already confused uh, Richard Nixon and, and Donald Trump. And I didn't even encourage you to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, it, it, you know, it, it is hard this week to escape the parallels of the two scandals and the two investigations as we have been living through them. Well, what do you make of Nick's point um, that had Watergate happened today, and maybe it did in a, in a peculiar way with the January 6th insurrection, uh, Nixon would have got away with it. Do you think there's some truth to that? Yeah. So one of the things that I really tried to do, you know, Watergate is a story that has been sliced and diced in a thousand different ways over the last 50 years. You know, it has spawned, you know, hundreds of books. It is, uh, you know, the the one of the most iconic uh, and lasting movies of the 20th century and all the president's men with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman playing uh, Woodward and Bernstein the two investigated the myth really of the two investigative reporters against the president um and, and i'm gonna watch that actually at the weekend that's my celebration yes. i'm not gonna go out for lobster i'm gonna watch that old yes. classic movie um and i think that uh one of the things that i really tried to do with my book was to try to tell the full story of watergate start to finish soup to nuts and what I think you see there actually makes the parallels with Donald Trump and January 6th even more clear, which is Watergate wasn't an event. It was a mindset. Um, it was this umbrella of about a dozen distinct but interrelated scandals that unfold uh, from the campaign in 68 right through Richard Nixon's resignation in the summer of 1974 where you see um, Nixon and this dark, criminal, paranoid, conspiratorial mindset uh, that he brings, that sort of follows him throughout his career in politics, that he brings into the White House and then permeates his uh, the upper ranks of his White House and the administration and his reelection campaign. And that this mindset is what leads to this series of events that uh, uh, that ultimately culminate in the public notice of the the June seventeenth burglary. But part of what makes the burglary cover up so necessary is that by that point, there are so many crimes, that so many conspiracies, so many abuses of power underway within the Nixon administration that they're not able to come clean about the burglary without threatening the unraveling of all of the rest of the dirty tricks and conspiracies that Nixon was up to. Garrett, we had... Uh... A couple of weeks ago, Jefferson Morley on the show. Uh, I'm sure you know Jeff. He has a new book out, very different from yours, Scorpion's Dance, The President, <clears throat> Biomaster, and Watergate. He comes up with a theory that, um, and, and it's probably not surprising because he's also the editor of JFK Facts. He suggests that uh, Richard Helms was somehow behind, not the, the, the burglary, but the leaking of the tapes because uh, Nixon threatened Helms with revealing the fact that the CIA was behind the assassination of JFK. I don't necessarily want you to comment on that, but it's certainly Watergate 
remains sort of central to the American narrative because everyone has their own take on it. Everyone has one kind of weird conspiracy or another, don't they? Yeah, and, and I think um, I would uh, I would sort of answer your question um, with this, which is, um, and I've I've read Jefferson Morley's book. Um, and, what do you think and, of it? it? Well, so I think where where I land is there are still very open questions to me about the CIA's involvement in knowledge of Watergate. Um, that one of the challenges that we see is that there is good reason to believe that the CIA knew a great deal about what Richard Nixon's dirty tricks operation was up to, um, and that there are real questions about whether they acted potentially even to sabotage the burglary that night on June 17th, 1972. Um, and, and- But you think they knew what was going on? Well, so the, uh, the, there were sort of seven people involved in the burglary that night. Um, the five burglars who were caught, plus G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, um, as the um, as sort of the masterminds of it. Um, and then there was an eighth man named Al Baldwin who was the lookout across the street. Well, of that group, E. Howard Hunt, retired CIA officer working in the Nixon White House and for the Nixon campaign while employed at a DC PR firm that was known for providing cover to CIA officers overseas. Uh, James McCord, one of the burglars arrested that night, a retired CIA officer who had been in charge of uh, the agency's physical security divisions. And, and Jefferson actually makes a, an interesting, uh, uh, draws some interesting parallel or um, I interesting new facts, new revelations um, about the level of involvement and knowledge that Howard Hunt and James McCord had before they, uh, of each other before they teamed up on Watergate. And then one of the burglars themselves, um, Eugenio Martinez, one of the Cubans uh, involved in the burglary, was actually on the CIA payroll that night. He was a hundred dollar a month asset um, and had been reporting back on his behavior to uh, on the Dirty Tricks team to a CIA handler. And, and so, you know, there's good reason to believe the CIA actually knew quite well what the burglars were up to that night. Um, and that because of the deep antipathy and distrust between the CIA and Richard, uh, between the CIA and CIA director Richard Helms uh, and Richard Nixon, um, you know, it's not impossible to believe that the CIA uh, was part of sabotaging the operation. And of course, in the immediate aftermath of Watergate, uh, the burglary, uh, Nixon leans on the CIA to encourage the FBI to drop their investigation of the burglars, trying to get the CIA to declare the whole thing a national security matter. Um, and one of the sort of fascinating moments is that the deputy CIA director, Vernon Walters, uh, writes down a very detailed series of memos about the pressure that he was under from Richard Nixon to bury the Watergate burglary 
um, memos that he holds on to and then releases later uh, at a critical moment to help sink Richard Nixon. Um, and- Gary, let's go back. You, you made an interesting comparison earlier between Nixon and Trump. Um, you write in the New York Times in terms of, I'm not sure if this was formally taken from the book or adapted. You write about Nixon that he was dealing with a new kind of presidency, didn't know quite how to deal with the office. It was too big for him. And he's a micromanager. That made him very different from Trump, who's anything but a micromanager and couldn't give a damn about the day-to-day detail. In terms of the men's, I mean, both perhaps they're both criminals and all the rest of it. I'm not particularly keen on either of them. I'm sure most of our audience aren't. But they're very different kinds of presidents dealing with a very different kind of presidency, aren't they? On one hand, yes. On the other hand, what they both share is that same dark, criminal, paranoid, conspiratorial mindset. Um, And and I think one of the things that is coming clear in the January 6th hearings is looking uh, more similar to us with a little bit of distance uh, with the Trump administration in, in terms of historical perspective to Watergate is that just as we now understand Watergate as one umbrella for a dozen distinct scandals, uh, all of which are driven by this paranoid, insecure, conspiratorial mindset that uh, Richard Nixon brings to the presidency, sort of all of the Donald Trump story is the same story, that the evolution from the Russian attack on the 2016 election to the Mueller investigation his obstruction of justice of the Mueller investigation, the the Zelensky perfect Ukraine telephone call, the first impeachment, the big lie around the legitimacy of the 2020 election, the lies that lead into the January 6th uh, insurrection, and then the second impeachment, that's all one thread. It's all one story in a way that I think sort of future historians will tell it all together in the same way that I tried to do uh, the Nixon presidency all together uh, with Watergate as the umbrella for this entire level of corruption. Yeah, it's a fascinating read. The book is brilliant. Congratulations, Garrett. But one th- another difference, because it's always easy to underline the similarities. It seems to me another difference between Nixon and Trump is that Nixon really had his his three Germans, Ehrlichman, uh, Haldeman, and Kissinger, for better or worse. These were loyal men. He trusted them. He had a a, a much tighter, more organized team uh, than Trump. He was a much better manager of people, wasn't he? He was, but he was also similarly isolated. Um, you know, one of the things that we see, uh, again, parallels between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump is someone who is very uncomfortable in his own skin, um, you know, has very few, um, you know, meaningful friendships uh, with people outside his family uh, in the way that we sort of consider uh, you know, normal friendships. Um, you know, Richard Nixon really had only two close friends in his presidency. Um, you know, Bebe Rubozo and, and Robert Abenplatt. Um, you know, both of them sort of men on the far outskirts of uh, 
of of the elite. Um, you know, both of them were terribly insecure, felt that they had been, you know, looked down upon by the elite establishments, you know, the butt of jokes, not the butt of respect. Um, and, and, you know, I think that we see a lot of that same insecurity and paranoia in both men in the way that it manifests in their human relationships, which is, um, you know, Richard Nixon built his staff mechanism in some ways so that he spoke to the fewest number of people possible. And he actually prefers, you know, deep solitude in his presidency um, in a way that is very atypical of how presidents normally interact. And, and you know, we saw sort of similar day-to-day -day behavior in President Trump in the way that he would sort of spend large portions of the day sitting by himself, uh, you know, watching cable news. They're both paranoid, of course, neither particularly attractive men, both struggle to build relationships. And yet I can't imagine Nixon being very good on Twitter. I mean, whatever one thinks about um, Trump, he's a Twitter genius. In fact, so good at it, they threw him off in the end. Uh, how do you think t Nixon would have dealt with social media? Um, so I think, and this comes back a little bit to the the questions that we were talking about at the top of the show uh, about the modern media environment and how it would have changed um, uh, the, uh, changed the outcome of, of Watergate. Um, I, I think that Nixon really would have survived Watergate in the modern media context, um, both because of social media and and because of the broader changes in the evolution of the right wing media ecosystem led by Fox News, that what we have seen so often in that uh, uh, modern age is the way that that right wing ecosystem is able to uh, both support an embattled president and also punish his accusers um, and, and investigators. Um, and, and I think that that media environment today, Richard Nixon survives. We are talking with uh, one of America's best, I think, nonfiction political writers, Garrett Graff, the author of Watergate, A New History. It's June the 17th, the 50th anniversary. And as one would expect, lots of pieces in the media about um, about this anniversary, pieces about the last guy to turn the lights out, some security guard who died destitute and forgotten. And of course, the inevitable pieces about Nixon wasn't such a bad guy. Uh, Garrett, we had um, Dwight Chapin on the show a few months mm -hmm. ago, one of Nixon's principal aides. He has a new book out, The President's Man. Uh, he went to jail for his sins and still believes in Nixon. Um, is there a need to rethink Nixon? I mean, obviously, everyone always brings up the China stuff. Was he as bad a president as Trump? I, I don't think so at all. Um, I, and, and I think that part of the tragedy of Richard Nixon is that by almost any measure, he is someone who is one of the most consequential presidents of the 20th century. This is, you know, he brought detente, 
with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. He reopened China. He was the first president to visit Moscow, first president to visit Beijing, first president to visit a communist bloc country in the Cold War. Uh, on the home front, he created OSHA, the EPA. He signed Title IX. He ended the draft. He took America off the gold standard. Uh, he uh, revolutionized uh, equal rights in the United States, brought a thousand women into the middle management of the federal government and the first military aides to the White House. This um, was a man who was on the national presidential ticket five times in the 20th century, a record tied only by FDR himself. He is the hinge upon which the entire American century turns. Um, you know, he ushers out the liberal consensus of the New Deal and the Great Society, turns the Republican Party and the nation towards, uh, you know, what we then called the Southern Strategy and uh, later saw as the Reagan Revolution, you know, this much more nativist, racialized, fear-mongering Republican Party. Um, he was on the cover of Time magazine more than any other human being in history, he, 55 times, more than a full year. And I bet he counted every one of them, right? He, he did. He did. Um, and, you know, more than a year's worth of news magazine covers at a time when the news magazine was one of the most influential uh, media organizations in the world. Um, and, and despite all of that, you know, in spite of all of that, uh, Richard Nixon will be forever remembered and probably only remembered by history for the Watergate scandal. Um, and, and this is a story of a man who reached for greatness, achieved so much of what he called uh, monuments in, in terms of policy achievements, uh, and actually comes close uh, to, to the greatness that he so wants in his career and is ultimately unable to get out of his own way and sinks himself with his paranoia and his conspiratorial criminal thinking. So rather than that song about where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio, perhaps we need a song about Richard Nixon. Do you think that had Watergate, and I know this is highly speculative, but as historians, you, you probably enjoy these kind of games. Um, had, had Watergate not blown up, had he not ordered the break-in, or had he not been impeached, do you think that the the last 50-year history of America would have been a little bit different? Do you think we would have degenerated as dramatically into Donald Trump and perhaps Joe Biden had Nixon survived? So I think one of the questions, one of the interesting things when you go back and you look at Watergate is that Nixon actually almost does succeed with the cover-up. You know, there are a good half dozen moments between the fall of or this, the summer of 1972 and, and March of 1973, when Watergate sort of finally achieves what you might call breakout momentum, uh, that Nixon almost gets away with it. You know, the wash, he, he is reelected in the fall of 1972 by the largest landslide in American presidential history. The Washington Post's own inaugural edition special edition uh, in January 73 doesn't even mention the word Watergate. Um, and so I, I think that your speculation isn't uh, all that speculative. You know, this is a man who comes very close to getting away with it all um, and uh, would have, you know, under those circumstances, probably left office quite triumphant. 
in the in January 1977. Yeah, but my question was more about the whether the Republican Party and, and, and you sort of touched on this would have experienced that same sharp shift to the right. I mean, some people would have, I guess, argued that uh, Nixon was an architect. We had Rick Perlman on the show last year, probably would argue that. But I'm guessing I'm guessing that Nixon wouldn't have approved of well, Donald Trump, would he? It, 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 um, no, uh, but, you know, Nixon, Nixon leaving office in, you know, under normal circumstances changes everything. Um, you know, there is no Jimmy Carter without Richard Nixon. Um, you know, there is, uh, you know, the, the rise of Ronald Reagan is directly uh, related to the fall of Richard Nixon. Um, you know, much of what we now attribute to the Reagan revolution is, in fact, the, the Nixon revolution electorally and politically first. Um, and, you know, Nixon was really thinking uh, that he was probably going to be, you know, handpicking a successor for, you know, sort of a quote unquote third Nixon term. Um, and had wanted that man to be John Connolly, the, the Democrat turned Republican uh, that he thought would be his best picked successor as president in 1976. Had he got his third term, of course, there'd have been lots of jokes about the Third Reich. Um, I wonder, though, whether the real comparison these days in terms of Nixon's legacy is a comparison between the, the rather clownish presidency of Gerald Ford and the equally uh, clownish presidency of Joe Biden, that men like Nixon and, 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 uh, and, and Trump have created so much tumult, so much passion, so much anger, that uh, their, their successors are essentially prisoners to the, them and the questions that they raise. Is there some truth to that? I mean, even today, uh, the, the headline for your review in um, in the New York Times was about uh, a Watergate scandal that never dies. And Nixon, of course, is buried, but he isn't really dead, is he? Uh, no, I mean we are very much still living with the shadow of Watergate fifty years later. Um, you know, in ways in ways big and small. Um, you know, this is what resets the relationship between the media and the government this is what leads in in many ways to the uh you know unraveling and collapse of trust and faith in american government and american institutions um one of the things that i think really is uh is striking in going back and looking at watergate then and now is also you know watergate in in a weird ironic way makes every future political scandal easier for a president to survive because part of what was so striking and shocking in watergate was people just didn't believe that a president could lie to the american people in the way that richard nixon has and of course now in the wake of watergate we have a much more cynical uh belief in our in our presidents and, and leaders. Um, and I think we are now less able to be shocked by malfeasance and corruption in our in our presidents and in our government. You had a piece in Axios about five things that we didn't know about Watergate that I guess you you write about. Uh, 
they're interesting. Uh, but what, what, what is your book generally, do you think? I mean, it, it's a beautifully written book and it's been extremely well reviewed. I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller if it isn't already one. Uh, what is it you were trying to do in your book that hasn't been done before? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And, and I think for me, the the power of Watergate is that this is such a important moment in American history. And it's one that we pretty profoundly misunderstand. We misremember why it happened, uh, how it happened, and how its legacy has shaped our politics since. So my goal with this book was to try to tell the full story of Watergate as we have only come to understand it sometimes in recent years, that the story that we sort of thought that we lived through from 72 to 74 actually has changed pretty dramatically in our understanding with new revelations, new documents, new facts, uh, and new motivations for some of the key players. Um, and so my goal with this was to sort of retell and recontextualize the story in a way that we can only do with the historical distance that we now have. The New York Times review, um, you got a great review, but the, the end, as always in these reviews, they always have to come up with something negative. They said that you didn't answer some of the longstanding questions. Who officially ordered the break-in? What was the aim? Were such central players as Howard Hunt and James McCord cooperating with the CIA as they orchestrated the break-in. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Do you think that the the full history of Watergate will ever be known? Or is it always going to be in the mists of history? There's always going to be debate. Nothing will ever be proven. Are there going to be documents, tapes, memories that come up that one day will, 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 will tell the complete and honest history, story of Watergate? I hope so. Um, some are still surfacing. There's actually, um, you know, just uh, today in the Washington Post, a new article by Jim Robineau, um, another historian, um, pointing to some new evidence about who ordered the burglary based on some audio tapes from H.R. Halderman that appear to point to John Mitchell, Nixon's attorney general and campaign director. Um, my fear, though, um, and my belief really is that uh, there are too many people who have died at this point without answering some of these underlying questions. Who would you talk to if you could get one guy in a room, dig him up? Who would be the person, apart from, obviously from Nixon? So I, I think John Mitchell is key to much of this. Um, he is uh, one of the most silent figures through the entire uh uh, and remind us, uh, Garrett, who Mitchell was. Yeah, so he was Nixon's uh, law partner in New York, um, goes on to become Nixon's campaign director, then becomes attorney general, then goes um, uh, back to the campaign to lead the campaign in 72, um, and in many ways becomes the fall guy for, for the Watergate burglary um, after the fact. Um, and he uh, never really spoke publicly. Um, he was uh, convicted at trial, becomes the highest ranking U.S. government official to ever go to prison, um, never publishes a memoir, never does a tell-all interview. Um, and he, he took uh, sort of many of his secrets, uh, presumably, to the grave at this point. We had John Dean on the show, actually. Uh, he 
he hasn't been silent. He has a new book out, Authoritarian Nightmare. What was Dean's relationship with Mitchell? So uh, Dean, uh, you know, is is obviously one of the most central and important figures in this entire story. Um, he is, uh, you know, White House counsel to Nixon in the run up to Watergate. This young, incredibly ambitious, uh, and uh, morally flexible uh, uh, aide, um, a, a, a very common Washington archetype in, in, in some ways as he sort of finds himself, as he calls in his uh, memoir, blind ambition, um, you know, sort of blindly ambitious, um, and uh, then becomes the architect of the cover-up after the fact, um, and also uh, eventually becomes the first to turn on the Nixon White House and cooperate with prosecutors. Um, and, so and he didn't do a Mitchell. He's he's the, the right. other side of the and, and, and he becomes the star witness in those summer uh, hearings in 73 that captivate America. Um, and he, uh, you know, has, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of becomes the main voice for what the conspiratorial mindset was inside the Nixon White House after Watergate. I wonder if there's a Mitchell in the the January 6th scandal. I, I don't suppose anyone would go to their grave from the Trump administration without spilling the beans. Uh, many uh, people will be familiar with your previous best-selling book, The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11. Uh, this new book, uh, A New History of Watergate, is not an oral history. It's more of a standard history. Did you ever consider an oral history? What, what, what's your sense of the difference between writing oral histories and more regular histories? What, 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 what did you miss in this book about the oral history? Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Um, the part of Watergate is it is just an incredibly complex tale. And so a lot of tracing the history of it is actually triangulating between different uh, accounts, different views. Um, there are a lot of very imperfect narrators uh, around the Watergate story. Um, you know, there are nearly three dozen memoirs uh, from people uh, with sort of directly related to the scandal and the Nixon uh, orbit. Uh, but many of them were actually convicted of perjury or obstruction of justice. I mean, we, we talk about um, part of the challenge of uh, the way that we remember Watergate is it's not just the burglary. It's not just the five burglars. It is, in fact, um, you know, all told 69 people who face charges and indictments in that full umbrella of scandals that we've been talking about. Um, and so the, the challenge fundamentally with Watergate is... Uh, there are too many lies to try to trust pulling together an oral history of a subject like this. Well, that's great stuff. And you do a wonderful job, Garrett, not only writing about it, but talking about it and connecting it with the present without sort of doing it in a, in a, in a dumb, flat way. So congratulations on the book. Uh, let's uh, end, as I always end, and we began today's show on that with a suggestion from you of further reading, not just uh, not just um, your new history. Uh, Nick Seabrook strongly recommended your book. Who are you recommending these days? What have you read recently that's really good? 
So to me, the, the best book that I've read uh, recently is um, a novel, a thriller called Five Decembers um, by the author, I think is James Kestrel. Um, it's this incredibly rich, textured story, um, a, a murder mystery set against the backdrop of Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. Um, and it's uh, it's probably the only thriller that I have ever seen that has a cover blurb from Jim Fallows. Um, uh, and uh, it lives up to the hype, uh, and I couldn't recommend it more strongly.